Hi, my name is Steve Allred, and if you're wondering what seminar this is, this is Witnessing in the Workplace, Letting Your Light Shine While Avoiding the Legal and Human Resource Issues That Could Be Pitfalls. Let me just tell you a little bit about myself really quick here. Uh, my name is Steve Allred, as I said. I am a pastor at, in, in Northern California at the Yuba City Church, and I'm also an attorney. I work with the Church State Council, which is the um, religious liberty arm of the Pacific Union Conference. They have a Sacramento office as well as one down in um, uh, Westlake Village. And I'm licensed in a few different jurisdictions. And something I just want to tell you about really quick here, since this is at ASI, I really admire ASI, is a free legal aid outreach that we do at our church twice a year. And it's just a great uh, way to, this is one of our posters from our most recent one, to reach out to the community and um, basically do something, a service for them that helps them. So we get attorneys together. You could do it at your church. I'd love to see ASI combine this with their medical clinics because it's just something that people uh, can receive services to get advanced directives and powers of attorney for finance, that kind of thing done. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about our seminar today. We're first of all just going to go through a couple of things on our commission as Christians, something that we know about probably. Um, we're going to ask the question, should Christians assert their legal rights and defend the rights of others? Then we'll look at an overview of federal and state law regarding religion in the workplace, and we'll talk about religious discrimination of others. Then we'll look at an overview of federal and state law regarding religion in the workplace, and we'll talk about religious discrimination and accommodation of religion in the workplace, and I'll explain these terms here in a little bit. Um, we'll talk about protecting expression of religion in the workplace, talking about your faith, while also as an employer and an employee avoiding uh, being accused of harassment in the workplace, um, enforcement and remedies after that, and then we'll take a little time for question and answer at the end. So if you have any questions, uh, you just can't wait, you're, you're free to raise your hand and, and I'll, you know, we can try to um, answer the question then, but I prefer if you can, if you can wait till the end, then we can just get through this and we'll have time for questions at the end. So, a little disclaimer here before we get going. The entirety of the presentation that uh, we're going to be having right now is for informational purposes only and not for the purpose of providing legal advice. Uh, you should contact your attorney to obtain advice with respect to your particular situation or issue or problem. So let's talk about the commission that we have as Christians. In the book of Acts... Jesus told the disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes to you, you will receive power. We need that power, don't we? We don't have power without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit. And he says, then you will be my witnesses in every part of the world. That's what we want, isn't it? Including in the workplace. That's what we want to be witnesses there. And of course, Jesus himself in the final chapter of Matthew 28 gave us what is known as the Great Commission, go and make disciples, right? And basically, that is our commission as well, to be witnesses. Um, Ellen White, in the book Christ's Object Lessons, a book I just finished listening to on um, audible.com, great book, one of my favorites right now. Character is power, she said. The silent witness of a true and selfish godly life carries an almost irresistible influence. So witnessing doesn't always have to be loud. It doesn't always have to be with words. It could just be how we act and live. And I like that. You'll see why I, I mentioned this in the context of some of the cases we'll be looking at here um, of people who were trying to witness in the workplace and it kind of came off wrong. Um, 
Got some questions for you. Should Christian employers and employees, these are rhetorical questions, I hope, be law-abiding citizens and people of integrity? What do you think? I think so, much as possible, right? Now, there is the, the caveat that in Acts 5.29, the well-known verse, Peter and the other apostles said, we ought to obey God rather than people. So when it comes to a conflict of you know, the laws of the land and and principles that God's word tells us to abide by are specifics, then, of course, we choose God's law over man's law. But Peter also reminds us in 2 Peter 2, 11 through 17, that if we suffer for doing what's wrong, it doesn't glorify God. There's no glory or, or anything in that. So we should be, as much as possible, law-abiding. Should we be industrious, hardworking? You know, you ever uh, maybe heard somebody complaining about you know, getting bad treatment on the job, but you know they're kind of lazy. That doesn't glorify God either, right? And so, of course, there are those verses. Don't be slothful in business, Romans 12, 11. Whatsoever your hand findeth to do, do it with your might. Ellen White, again, Christ Object Lessons, told you it was a good book. Uh, it is the duty of every Christian to acquire habits of order, thoroughness, and dispatch. I want that. Uh, there is no excuse for slow, bungling work of any character. There you go. Uh, should we be respectful of the rights and freedoms of others? This is a good question, isn't it? And it especially applies in a society as diverse and uh, pluralistic as ours is becoming. How respectful should we be of the rights and the freedoms of even people that we disagree with? Well, Luke 6.31, a verse I want to share with you in a few minutes in its entirety, it's the golden rule. What is the golden rule? So think about how you would want to be treated if you were in a situation where you were being, uh, you know, with someone who disagreed with you. All right, what about asserting and defending our legal rights? Now, I remember I had someone uh, ask me one time what I did as far as the legal aspect of um, my work, and, and I said, well, a lot of what I do is um, we actually help people who are being discriminated against in the workplace, and uh, let's say it's an issue with uh, Sabbath, and they can't get the Sabbath off or something like that, uh, we'll help them to try to negotiate with the employer. And if necessary, and if they want to, uh, and we feel like the Holy Spirit is leading that way, we will actually even go to court for them, et cetera. And the person said, well, isn't that a bad witness? And, uh, and they, they, I think we're thinking of this verse here. Avenge not yourselves. Vengeance is mine, God says, I will repay. So it's not my job to you know, take vengeance. And I would say, absolutely, amen, I agree. Um, we should never have a vengeful attitude. Would you agree? when it comes to anything, honestly. That's God's job. Um, and I think love for God and our neighbor must motivate all that we do. Sometimes love for God and our neighbor actually, as we'll see in a minute here, motivates us, I believe, to even maybe taking some legal action. I'm not saying that that's always what you do, but perhaps. Um, you know, instead of passivity, where you don't do anything when your rights are threatened, uh, or aggression, that's where you take vengeance for yourself. I think Jesus gave us this thir a third way to respond to evil. You can read it in Matthew 5, 39 through 42. He talks about loving our enemies and turning the other cheek and what that looks like. Um, turning the other cheek doesn't necessarily mean passivity, and you can look at some scholarly work out there on what that meant in their culture. It actually means maybe looking the person in the eye and trying to help them realize that you have a shared humanity. And... Um, Attitude, I think, is really the key with asking the question, should we assert and defend our legal rights as Christians? Um, you know, some verses to look at, if you're kind of interested in this, Acts 16, 37, Acts 22, 25 through 29, and also Acts, the 26th chapter. 
those are stories where Paul actually asserted and defended his legal rights. It's interesting. You remember that perhaps in the Philippi jail, uh, the Philippian jail, he is uh, he's beaten and all this stuff, and then they take him out, uh, and, and they say, the magistrates have said to, to get out of town, just leave. You know, we don't want to deal with this anymore. He said, no, 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 we're Roman citizens. Have them come escort us out of town, right? So there was something there where he asserted his right as a Roman citizen that said, no, actually, it's not right for them to do what they're doing. Um, and, and he did it, of course, in a loving way, I'm sure, respectful, but yet he did it. And also, of course, in Acts chapter uh, 16, I believe it. No, 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 22, actually, is where this story is, where he actually asked the Roman centurion, who was about to flog him, uh, is it right for you to put a Roman in bonds? And it says the centurion was afraid. Oh, no, this guy's a Roman citizen. So Paul did assert his legal rights, um, and there are other stories as well. And uh, so it's not necessarily the wrong thing to do. I think it depends on the situation and the leading of the Holy Spirit. I have a friend who worked as a pilot for a large airlines, large airline, and he uh, actually had an opportunity to sue this airline for probably millions of dollars because of what they did to him, discriminatory in regard to his, uh, uh, well, I don't know about millions, but it would have been a good settlement, let's put it that way. Probably he would have been set for the rest of his life. And he um, decided not to do it, even though he would have probably been able to win because he just felt like it wasn't the right thing to do at that time. It wasn't the right witness. So he went to work for another airline and still flying. And um, so there's always that question, God, what do you want me to do? But we are told, I like this, look at this, Psalms 82, 3 and 4, defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy. God does call us, would you agree, to stand up for those who are voiceless and oppressed? And I think as Christians, we ought to take that seriously, and especially those who can't afford, you know, uh, maybe a lawyer or something like that. That's why I really appreciate what, um, I get volunteer attorneys together, and they volunteer to help people. It makes me very happy to see that. Okay, let's see. Ellen White chimes in on this. Testimonies of the Church, volume 5, page 714. We are not doing the will of God if we sit in quietude, doing nothing to preserve liberty of conscience, you know. Hold your hands and pray, and that's all we're supposed to do, right? Let there be more earnest prayer. We should pray. And then let us work in harmony with our prayer. She has other quotes as well that talk about this. In fact, in the book, The Great Controversy, that we're studying through in a prayer meeting at our church, she actually says, um, there will be at the end of time people in high influential positions in government who will basically uh, keep freedom uh, there for the rest of us. So God does use law. He does use legal protections to help his work go forward. Um, should we defend freedom of conscience for those with whom we disagree? What do you think? This is a really touchy question nowadays, because uh, I actually just helped out a Muslim prisoner recently with a religious liberty issue. Um, the church state council, we were working on a case for this guy, and some people were very offended that I would help a Muslim person out. I don't know what you think about that, but I, I thought, no, if I were in, uh, if the positions were reversed, I would want his help. So why would I not help him? And I think the verse here in Luke 6.31 says it all. Treat others the same way you would want them to treat you. You agree with that? So whether you agree or not, let's just kind of go through some of the federal and state statutes here. And I'm going I'm to give you just an overview today. Of course, we can't deal with the law, particularly from every state. But I'm going to kind of give you a little overview of at least federal law. And uh, so the main law that deals with workplace issues when it comes to religion and discrimination is what's called Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. 
Now, and by the way, it's been amended over the years, and they've added protections for religion um, through uh, the decades since 1964, so we're not going to get into all that history. Um, many states have laws that are modeled after Title VII. A few of those states have laws that are a little bit more protective. For example, California's law, which is the Fair Employment and Housing Act, uh, otherwise known as FEHA, uh, is more protective than Title VII. It's actually a really good law when it comes to defending religious freedom for people in the workplace. And just a little quote here from Teresa Benier and John DePippa, the point of anti-discrimination laws, in case you're wondering, okay, why do we have these? Maybe you've never experienced discrimination in the workplace. It's to open up employment opportunities for individuals in spite of differences. The law, basically, the government's role, they're, they're saying here, is basically to try to make it so that everyone can participate in the marketplace to some extent. You know, obviously, you can't completely always, but at least we can kind of maybe level that ground. Allowing coworkers to stifle the religious beliefs of others, often resulting in the termination or constructive discharge of the religious employee, is antithetical to those principles and results in a burden being placed on religious employees because of their religion. So that's why we have those, those type of laws. Title VII, we're going to refer to that law up there as just Title VII. That's the main law that we're going to be talking about today. But like I said, some of the state laws that you'll see are modeled often very closely after Title VII. So let's talk about Title VII. What is it? Okay, it's a law. We know that. It's a federal law. That means it applies to all of the 50 states. Um, it applies to businesses with, who employ 15 or more employees. Now, there's a little nuance there. It has to be for 20 months of the year or whatever or more. But if you have a business with 15 or more employees, then this would apply to you. Now, you might say, well, I don't. So you're going to just, you know, that's it. Well, but I would caution you to be careful because your state likely has an anti-discrimination law for the workplace as well. And some of those state laws actually have a lower threshold for businesses. For example, in California with FIHA, the law I was just telling you about, it applies to businesses with five employees or less. And in California, uh, the anti-discrimination laws apply to employees with, or businesses with five employees or less, but harassment occurring in any business even with one employee, uh, the law protects that employee. Does that make sense? So Title VII is the federal law, 15 or more employees. I think Washington State, if you're from Washington, has a law, it's called the Washington Law Against Discrimination. If I can get my mouse to work here. Um, it, I believe, applies to businesses with eight employees. Yeah, eight employees or more. Okay, your state's anti-discrimination, yeah, may apply to business with your employees. Now, here's the thing. Religious organizations are permitted to give employment preference to members of their own religion. In other words, religious organizations in every state that I've been able to find, at least, and under federal law, are exempt from Title VII's uh, religious discrimination provisions. That does not mean that religious organizations can discriminate on other bases, though. Uh, basically, what... The law says is if a religious organization has a religious reason for discriminating, then it's okay. Does that make sense? So um, if you're an Adventist uh, self-supporting ministry, and we'll get into the, you know, the, uh, talking about how do you determine if something is a religious organization or not in a minute, um, and you want to hire Seventh-day Adventist people, well, you should be permitted to do that. Um, 
this also, uh, some people have asked, well, what about with the new gay marriage law and how's that going to apply? And you might be asking questions about this later. We can talk about that. But it's my understanding in at least California right now and Washington State as well, that if, again, if you're a religious organization and you have a religious reason for discriminating, okay, then you're allowed to do that. But you can't do it if you're just like, well, I don't like, you know, to hire disabled people or, you know, something like that. Or I don't like this person because of the skin, skin color or their gender. Those things don't fly. Um, so what about religious organizations? What is a religious organization in the eyes of Title VII and in, under most state laws? And, and there are some wrinkles when it comes to uh, state anti-discrimination laws. You've got to look at each state individually, and it might be different. But under Title VII, generally speaking, and this is from, by the way, the EEOC, which is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That's the federal agency that's charged with making this law um, work and also fielding complaints that come under this law. Um, they say this, the exception, in other words, who is a religious organization? The exception to Title VII's religious discrimination applies only to those institutions whose purpose and character are primarily religious. Some factors include, so if you're wondering, is my organization as a self-supporting entity primarily religious? Here's, here's the thing, some factors. Uh, whether its articles of incorporation state a religious purpose, whether its day-to-day -day operations are religious. In other words, are the services that the entity performs, the product it produces, the educational curriculum it provides directed towards propagation of religion. Uh, whether it is nonprofit or for-profit whether it is affiliated with or supported by a church or other religious organization. Those are some of the factors that courts will use to look at and see, is this a religious organization or not? Does that make sense? And um, so the, the, the answer, is my organization a religious organization, is not always cut and dry. What does Title VII actually say? This is it right here. This is the part of it, I should say, that applies to religion and religious discrimination. Um, it shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer, number one. And this is what these uh, two uh, prescriptions here are often referred to as the disparate uh, treatment provision and the disparate impact provision. Number one, the disparate treatment. Number two, the disparate uh, impact. Number one, it's unlawful for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge, that means to fire, terminate, an individual, okay? Or otherwise to discriminate against them with respect to his compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment. So in other words, does that make sense to everybody? You can't not hire somebody, uh, you can't fire somebody, you can't discriminate against them and say, I'm gonna pay you less because of these factors that we're gonna talk about now. Uh, based upon their race, their color, and there it is, religion right there. This is good, right? Their sex, that means their gender, or their national origin, okay? So these factors, or these um, different classes, protected classes, race, color, religion, sex, national origin, are things you cannot discriminate against. Now, um, so if you're not a religious organization, you can't even discriminate on the basis of religion, okay? Number two, uh, you cannot impact them differently than other people. You can't just um, actually you know, discriminate against them, but there, there can't be an impact of your actions that treat them differently either. Number two, to limit, segregate, or classify their employees or applicants in any way which would deprive or tend to deprive any individual of employment opportunities 
et cetera, et cetera, again, based on the religion and these other factors as well. Okay, so the term religion includes all aspects of religious observance. So you might be asking, well, what is someone's religion? Let's say you're an employer. How many of you are employers? Do you have employees? Don't you have to like have a business to be part of ASI or something? I, I'm not a member, so I'm so you have uh, employees, I'm assuming. Most of you do, right? Okay. So you might be wondering, well, what if my employee comes to me and says, it's my religious conviction that I should you know, fly in a hot air balloon tomorrow, and I need the day off work to go flying in a hot air balloon? And you might be like, well, what religion is that? And they could give you some you know, crazy religion that they just made up on the spot, right? Is that something you have to, would it be discriminatory to say, no, you can't do that tomorrow? Sorry, I'm not going to accommodate that. What is religion? It includes all aspects of religious observance and practice. So it's everything in, involved in that person's religion as well as their belief. Now, this is where the accommodation portion that we're gonna talk about comes into play. Unless an employer demonstrates that they are unable to reasonably accommodate to an employee's or prospective employee's religious observance without undue hardship to their business. We're gonna define that in just a minute here as well. Okay, so Title VII prohibits employers from discriminating against any individual based upon their bona fide religious belief. That means it's got to be sincerely held, something that they really actually believe. Um, that's rarely contested. It's not, never really an issue in court about whether someone's religious belief is sincerely held. I mean, I, there, there are some times, because they'll say, well, they, they didn't do it this time, but they, you know, they, were, they weren't keeping their Sabbath holy now, but then they were doing it over here, they were doing it differently. But generally speaking, that's not where the, the catch is usually at. Um, okay, must be based on religion and sincerely held. Here's a funny case. Uh, well, not funny, the next one's actually funny. This one here is, atheists are protected under Title VII since courts have found that they should have the freedom to believe or not believe. It makes sense, right? Your absence of religion is just as much a belief about religion as your having religion is, right? That's from Young v. Southwestern Saving Loan case, which we will look at in detail a little bit later if we have time. Um, this one's interesting. The plaintiff's personal religious creed concerning cozy kitten cat food. This is a real case. Can you imagine this? This plaintiff, and I don't recall if I've read this whole case or not, but they actually said, well, it's my belief, religious belief, that I have to eat cat food. And I guess they brought it to work, and the employer wasn't cool with that. And so when it was actually litigated, the court said, actually, it's not a religious belief that you have to eat cat food. That's just outlandish, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, veganism, I believe there's a case about that, is not considered a religion either. Now, it's, it's interesting. You could say, well, I have a religious conviction that I don't eat pork or I don't eat meat or whatever. That's probably a little bit different here than this. Um, but this person's religion apparently was based very largely around eating cat food. And the, the court said, no, that's just a mere personal preference. It's beyond the parameters of the concept of religion as protected by the Constitution. Generally, courts don't get into deciding what's a religious belief and what's not. Generally, if you say, hey, this is my religious belief, and if you're part of a church, for example, a denomination, that, you know, it, it, it's not an issue because courts don't want to get into that. It's, they don't want to mess with the um, free exercise establishment clause stuff. So, when it comes to uh, stuff like this that's kind of out there, I'm just kind of giving an idea of what is religion in the eyes of Title VII. Does that make sense? All right, so let's just go through here. Um, 
Some courts recognize these basic causes of action for religious discrimination in the, in the workplace. We already talked about the disparate treatment clause of Title VII, right? And then the disparate impact. That means discriminatory treatment, discriminatory impact of your actions against your employee or if you're an employee of your employer's actions against you. And then this, failure to accommodate. To accommodate just means to what? Allow something. Failing to allow that, either if you're an employee or an employer. So, let's just say, you're like, dude, I was discriminated against, right? How do you make the case for that? Here you go, right here. Plaintiff, that's the person who's going to do the suing. You're the loss, the bringing the lawsuit, okay? Shows that he was a member of a protected class. Remember I told you that they're under Title VII, you have, uh, what did you have? Your gender, right? Uh, your color, right? Your, your ethnic ethnicity and your religion, um, you are one of, those, one of those protected classes based on your religion. You have to show that, hey, this is my religion. I have a religious belief. That's all you're doing. That he experienced an adverse employment action. That could be that you were demoted. That could be that uh, they were terminated. They were not hired. And someone else of a similar standing was, etc. That they were qualified for the job or performing well hey, you didn't hire me, I was more qualified than the person you did hire, and I think it was because of my religion, um, and that they were replaced by someone outside a protected class, here we go, or treated differently than similarly situated employees. And, and a lot of cases talk about this, but I got that from one particular uh, law review article there by Jennifer Drobrak and Jill Wesley. Okay, how about the case for failure to accommodate? I'm just going to go through these really quick. You might be wondering right now, well, dude, this is a lot of uh, legalese, Wait till we get to the cases. You will have, uh, I think you'll enjoy these cases. Um, a lot of interesting detail. So how do you make the case for failure to accommodate? An employee shows that she engages in a bona fide religious practice that conflicts with her job requirement. Let's just take Sabbath. You know, you, you say, I keep the Sabbath, and uh, my job requires that I have to work on Sabbath. The employer is aware of the employee's practice and the conflict. You tell your employer, hey, I can't work Sabbaths, it conflicts with my religion, and the employee suffers an adverse employment action for practicing her conflicting religious beliefs. They fire you. Uh, the burden then shifts to the employer, who must show that it offered a reasonable accommodation. So the employer then in court, or before that, if you're going to litigate, or if you're going to settle this out of court, uh, in court, they've got to show that they offered a reasonable accommodation. They said to you, well, you can work on Sundays. That would be a reasonable accommodation, right? You don't have to work on Saturdays. We'll let you work some other time. Or that an accommodation would cause it undue hardship. This is usually what happens here. A lot of you know, employers, when, once you get to the, the level that um, you're litigating something, they're going to say, well, it would cause us undue hardship. Now, here's the thing. Under Title VII, um, any accommodation that would cost the employer more than a de minimis cost is considered undue hardship for the employer. Uh, de minimis means very, very little. Right, and uh, so if an employer could show that, you know, it would cost them an extra five dollars, or they'd have to hire somebody for an extra couple hours to do your job, hey, they're off the hook. It's undue hardship. So honestly, for employers to prove undue hardship, it's not that hard. So if you're an employer and you're like, dude, I don't know, do I have to accommodate this person's weird religious belief? Not that hard to really show that, honestly. But we'll talk about best practices for employers in a minute, and what I recommend you do to avoid having to deal with this kind of stuff at all so that you're not going to worry about litigation at all. I want to take you through a few cases. Is that okay? Just to show you some of these actual court cases that deal with both religious discrimination 
And specifically, I want to focus on failure to accommodate, because that's oftentimes when it comes to a lot of religious stuff that I, I deal with, it's about uh, a failure to accommodate someone's religious practice. Along with that, you, there's usually a cause of action for discrimination as well. But those are, you know, we just went through the, the different uh, things that need to be proved for that. So this case, Transworld Airlines v. Hardison, the TWA v. Hardison case, is a seminal case when it comes to the issue of workplace accommodation. One of the first that the Supreme Court dealt with this. And honestly, it was a very bad case for employees and a very good case for employers. So wherever you stand on that issue. Um, and by the way, as we go through this presentation, uh, know that if you're an employee, you're gonna glean some stuff. If you're an employer, you're gonna, you're gonna glean some things. And at the end, I'm gonna wrap things up for both of you so that you can see um, in a bullet point manner, you know, what is recommended for both employers and employees. Larry Hardison was a member of the Worldwide Church of God, and he kept the Sabbath on Saturday, just like Seventh-day Adventists do. Um, he previously worked as a clerk for a TWA store, and he requested an accommodation to keep Sabbath. He was subject to a seniority system based on this airline union. They had this seniority system, collective bargaining agreement thing. And after unsuccessful attempts to accommodate him, he was fired. So the Supreme Court held that, number one, the seniority system itself, as set out in collective bargaining agreements, represent a significant accommodation by the employer to the needs, both religious and secular, of all airline employees. Basically, they said, hey, you know, since you guys have a union and you've had this collective bargaining agreement agreed upon, um, the employer's already gone the extra mile just to even have this to begin with. So, you know, this may not apply in your particular situation because most of you, if you have a small business, I'm sure you don't have a union you're having to deal with necessarily. But just to kind of give you a little foundation here. Secondly, the, the court held, and by the way, just a little tidbit of information that's interesting, is the justice that wrote this particular case, Justice Byron White, is actually a, um, I think a cousin of a Seventh-day Adventist pastor who I worked with for a few years. Interesting. Uh, and this case was against the Sabbath keep, not very friendly toward them. The airline could not be faulted for having failed itself to work out a, a shift or job shift, basically, for this guy. Uh, basically, the, the court here was saying he should have worked something out himself. You know, it's not the employer's fault. And thirdly, you know, um, basically, the seniority system, it would have required that to accommodate this guy, the seniority system would have been violated. Um, he was lower in seniority than the people above him who would have had to change their schedules in order to accommodate him. So basically the court was saying that, sh you know, you don't need to do that. And, um, you know, the this, this seniority system is not an unlawful employment practice, even if it has some discriminatory consequences. And the airline was not permitted to uh, allow him, not required to allow him to work a four-day week. He said, hey, I, I don't want to work Saturdays. Could you guys accommodate me? No. Uh, can I work less time? No. And the court said that's fine. The employer can say that. So that's kind of that case. All right, this is an interesting case as well, also uh, involving the Worldwide Church of God member. His name was Joseph Cook. This is out of California, Ninth Circuit case. Um, employer accommodated his Sabbath observance by having other employees work his Friday night shift, but did not pay them overtime. Okay, so you see what's happening here? This guy works for this company. He says, I can't work Friday nights through Saturday nights. They say, okay, we'll find some other people to work for you. They do. But instead of paying those people overtime as they would have if 
in, under normal circumstances. They just said, would you work for this guy at night? And the, apparently they agreed to do this for a while. After a while, the other employees said, we're not willing to do this anymore without you paying us overtime. And so the employer uh, thought, hmm, we want to accommodate our, our man, Joseph Cook. So they were very proactive, and they offered Cook another position. Um, and the court ultimately found after the, this, this uh, company was a very proactive company. They did a very good job. They, they looked around. They called other, other plants. Hey, can you put them on over there on non-Sabbath hours? Can you do this and that and the other? They were very proactive. And the court actually found the employer had basically bent over backwards to try to reasonably accommodate Cook. Very, very nice company to do this. And I think uh, the outcome there was, was correct. Uh, this is another case. African-American deputy sheriff for the Jefferson County's Sheriff's Office down in Kentucky. He was also a Baptist minister. And uh, Mr. Urban requested transfer to a unit, part of the Sheriff's Office, that operated 24-7. But he wanted an accommodation so that he could still function as a minister at his church on Sundays. So, when he was denied accommodation at the new position, he sued for racial and religious discrimination. Now, let me just kind of tell you a little more detail about this case. So he had worked for, uh, I believe it was like a bailiff in the courtroom, okay? And that allowed him to work um, Monday through Friday, didn't require him to work on the weekends, and he was fine with that. He requested transfer to another department. They gave him that transfer. And then ultimately, he requested transfer to this unit that served warrants on people and was out, had to be available 24-7 to go out and do that kind of thing, restraining orders and that kind of thing. Um, and they said to him, well, sure, you can have the job, but no, we can't accommodate your, your need to keep Sunday holy because we actually need you all the time. So he sued them in that situation. He, they said, but you can go back to your old job. You can still be a bailiff in the courtroom. So what do you think? Let me hear a little feedback. Do you think he should have won this case? Why not? So, I mean, under this situation, it seems like the employer was being pretty fair, right? They're saying, you know what? Hey, we got these jobs that actually do accommodate you. No difference in pay. Everything's cool. Uh, but if you want this particular position within the same company, it just doesn't work for your religious beliefs. So, actually, you're right. The court found for uh, the, the sheriff's department, the county, I think it was, and, um, and first of all, they found that, that Irvin, Mr. Irvin, had not established a prima facie case in that sense. So, basically, he didn't even establish the fact that they discriminated against him. You have to establish that first of all, right? Like we just went through the elements of that earlier. Uh, he didn't establish a failure to, ac to accommodate because... They actually had said, hey, no, we, we still want you to work for us, just not right there. We can get you over here. So, um, yeah, basically it allowed him to go back to his original position, accommodate his religious practices, and the court said, you know, the employer is not required to make special provision to accommodate the deputy in the new position. Is, you know, it, they were already accommodating him elsewhere. All right, another case where the courts found no failure to accommodate, in other words, the, this is, these are all cases that are for the employer. So if I ask you what you think the out, outcomes would be, you can always go up here and cheat and just think, oh, it's for the employer. Um, this gentleman, John Harmon, was a Catholic who worked in General Electric's machine shop. He was also a pacifist, didn't believe in war. He sought accommodation based upon his religious convictions that would not permit him to continue to work in the General Electric machine shop because I guess they were making things that had to do with uh, implements of war, perhaps. So GE tried to accommodate him, 
They continued to pay him for nine weeks when he was not working, apparently, and made an effort to relocate him to another part of their company. Uh, court held that the employer's attempts at accommodation were more than reasonable. Under those situa uh, circumstances, it seems like they did what they could, right? A couple more here. This is an interesting case. It involved a Native American, uh, Benjamin County v. Hennepin. And Irene Benjamin worked uh, as a clerical assistant in a part of this county. She alleged, among other things, that she was not allowed to smudge. Anybody know what smudging is? I didn't either until I read this case. But apparently it's a religious ritual that they burn some incense or some sage, and it purifies the uh, area where they work. And so some of the employees were complaining, hey, listen, it's kind of smoky in here. This isn't good for our health, right? And... Uh, fire hazard, et cetera, et cetera. So the employer said, hey, listen, you can smudge after 4 p.m. when everyone else has gone home. You can even come into the supervisor's office. You can smudge in there if you want, okay? You just can't do it at your desk during work hours. And uh, Ms. Benjamin did not like that, and it, she said they failed to accommodate her religious practice. And, of course, Found for the employer, the court found that the employer had accommodated for purpose under Minnesota state law, which is similar to Title VII here in this particular case, the employee's request to smudge. And again, they gave her these different options. So this is, are you getting the picture of what an accommodation looks like? That's what I'm trying to do, help you understand what an accommodation in, in practical real life cases looks like. It's usually the employer being reasonable. So. One more case, I think, uh, that goes into this. This is Earl Rice, a Seventh-day Adventist. He was a truck driver for the defendant. This is out in Georgia where this happened. This is a district court case from Georgia. He requested to have Sabbaths off, okay? And uh, he notified his supervisor of his newly found convictions. Now, here we are. Now, we've gone from no failure to accommodate up here to now we're going to failure to accommodate. So guess who, who gets to win in this case, Okay. Um, he notified his supervisor of his newly found convictions, and he was assured that things would be taken care of. So he goes out. It's Friday afternoon, about 3 o'clock, and he goes to pick up a load of freight at this one company. He pulls in, and the load of freight is not ready. So he radios back to his control manager, hey, um, I think I could run over and pick up that other load of freight that I need to get later tonight, or after this load. I can do it now, and then when I come back, the 3 o'clock load will be ready at that time. Um, the manager says, no, 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 just wait. Stay right there. Okay. So he stays. He radios again. Hey, it's still not ready. You want me to just run over real quick? I can grab that, and then I'll come back and get this. No problem. No, stay where you're at. Okay. So he stays there. He picks up the load that's late at 3 o'clock, and it's probably about 4 or 5 o'clock now at this point. I don't know what time of the year this was. I don't recall. But it's getting close to sundown. And so he's heading back to the place where his um, load is supposed to be delivered, and, he, and the employer calls up and says, you need to go pick up the load over there that you were supposed to get as well. He said, sorry, I can't because it's going to be after sundown. I would have done it earlier, but I just can't do it at this point. I'm sorry, I won't be able to do it. The employer says, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to fire you. So uh, Mr. Rice, uh, by the way, interesting story. He had not been a very... Uh, he had not really kept the Sabbath at some point during his career, but then he came to the conviction that he should. And so the employer was kind of learning about this, but he'd given them very good notice. And at this point, he was very convicted that he wanted to keep the Sabbath. And so he decided to go back to 
the placer to drop it off and to not pick up the other load. He got back to his workplace and he was terminated. So the court in this case, when he, was, when he sued for failure to accommodate, the employer moved for summary judgment. That's where basically before it goes to trial, they say, hey, let's just let the judge decide based upon all the evidence that's been put in here now and uh, they can make a decision based on this without it having to go to a jury. And the court found for Mr. Rice. Here's what they held. It said the employer made no effort to accommodate him even though there were accommodations available that would have removed the conflict and caused the employer no undue hardship. The employer could have done something about this. They were just being a jerk, basically, and they didn't want to do anything. Uh, a couple of other cases here on failure to accommodate. This is where the court now found for the employee, okay? I want to show you, I'm showing you what it looks like, what it doesn't look like to accommodate. This one here um, is about a Jehovah's Witness. His name was Lester Young. California Fair Employment Housing Commission versus Gemini Aluminum Corp. Uh, this is in California, California State Court case. Worked for the defendant for nearly 30 years and had attended a witness convention, something to do with his church, every year, almost all the time. He missed a couple years. Attending the religious convention was part of his religious faith. It was considered something that his church required or at least strongly encouraged. Um, this particular year, he again requested time off for a Friday and Saturday to attend this, and they denied his request. He said, hey, listen, it's part of my faith. And by the way, that's really important when we're talking about accommodation here, notifying the employer that it's actually part of one's faith, not just something you know, that you uh, want the weekend off so you can go play at the beach or something. Um, he went to the convention anyway, and when he returned to work, he was suspended for 10 days. Now, he, he said, listen, this isn't right because other people have missed a day of work, and you've only suspended them for like three days, let's say. Why 10 days for me? You guys are discriminating against me. You're treating me different than the person who doesn't ask for religious reasons. Uh, he notified the supervisor he intended to file a complaint, and once he did that, they fired him. These are not very smart employers. You just think about how they're dealing with this, okay? Uh, the court held that Jim and I had, that's the employer, failed to initiate reasonable accommodation efforts. I'm going to give you some tips as employers I think that are, that are helpful. Having dealt with employees and seeing how employers have treated them and what leads that employee to want to complain and eventually sue the employer, it seems like an employer could do some pretty simple things to really avoid that. And in this case, you can kind of see how. They could have just said, hey, let's, let's work with you, man. Uh, they retaliated against him and they failed to prevent discrimination the court found. A couple more cases here on where the employer failed to accommodate. Kinney, the Ambulatory Center of Miami, Florida. This lady, Margaret Kinney, was a Catholic nurse. She brought an action against her employer um, hospital following her demotion for refusing to assist with abortions. She said, I don't want to you know, uh, participate in abortions. And uh, the hospital said, well, we're going to have to cut your pay then and put you in a different department. So they thought it was, you know, so this is necessary for financial reasons, and uh, they're not, no one's willing to swap duties with her, and so it went to court. The appellate court, after it hit, I think, uh, I forget who lost at the district level, but uh, in, on appeal, um, Margaret Kinney won. An employer, they said, must reasonably accommodate an employee's religious practice unless Again, there's that undue hardship thing, which, by the way, again, very low bar, very low bar in most places. California, it's a little bit higher. Um, okay, unless they show they can suffer an undue hardship. 
The evidence, including the fact that 84% of nursing duties at the hospital did not involve gynecological procedures, demonstrated that additional efforts by the employer to accommodate Ms. Kinney's religious belief would not have caused undue hardship. In other words, if 84% of what, of what you're doing doesn't involve this, you could probably find something you're just lady to do full time that doesn't involve you know, uh, being involved with abortions. And so they said she was entitled to reinstatement to her former position before she was demoted, unpaid wages, damages, et cetera. A couple more cases. Kentucky Commission on Human Rights. Um, this is another Jehovah Witness. Worked for Lesco as a secretary. Now, this is kind of interesting. This might apply to some of your smaller, these smaller businesses here, you folk. One of her dudes is answered the phone with, Merry Christmas, Lesco. Now, if you know anything about Jehovah Witnesses, they don't believe in Christmas, right? Or a lot of holidays, or even birthdays, I think, right? And um, I respect Jehovah Witnesses. I'm not uh, saying that derogatorily, but they, they, she was not, didn't like this, right? And um, she objected. And then they fired her. And it was, it's a long story, but, you know, they eventually said, nope, you're out the door, because you won't say Merry Christmas. So, you might say, well, hey, that's the employer's right. Well, maybe it was, but Apparently, this had to do with, though, with her very, you know, firmly held religious belief. And so, she filed a complaint down there in Kentucky with the state commission that deals with the same things as the federal EEOC does. And, she, and, and they found that she had suffered religious discrimination. And they ordered her, them to pay back pay, the wages she lost since she was uh, fired, and damages, basically. That means money for her emotional suffering, et cetera, compensatory damages. Um, she appealed... Or, I'm sorry, the company appealed, and the appellate court, they agreed with the Kentucky Commission on Human Rights, and they found that the employer could have accommodated her religious beliefs without undue hardship. You know, I don't know exactly what their reasoning, you know, if they're like, well, you could have had her answer the phone with something else or not answer the phone at all, but basically it wasn't going to cost you guys any money or make you lose business to not have her answer the phone with Merry Christmas. Um, now, this is a really more recent case. You might have heard about the Abercrombie uh, case at the Supreme Court. Anybody heard about that? And it had to do with a Muslim gal, Samantha Eloff, I guess. I don't know how to say her name exactly. She uh, wanted to wear a headscarf. This was part of her religious conviction. So she goes to an interview at Abercrombie and Fitch. She sits down with the interviewer, and they uh, do the interview. Apparently, she did well. They notice, though, that she has this, you know, religious headdress on. So the, the lady who did the interview calls up her, uh, or emails her supervisor, says, hey, there's this gal who came in, you know, basically, it sounded like they were going to hire her, but she wears this, you know, funny headdress. Uh, the supervisor said, nope, can't do it. She uh, doesn't fit our look policy. And now keep in mind that all along, the employer... Uh, Samantha Ulaf had not said to them, uh, oh, by the way, notice my headdress? This is because of my religion. She didn't do that. And so when it eventually went to trial, okay, so they failed to hire her because of her headscarf and um, it violated their look policy. Now, the Supreme Court got to the Supreme Court eventually, and they held that Title VII prohibits a prospective employer, that means someone who's not yet hired somebody, those who, you know, in this case it was a failure to hire case, from refusing to hire an applicant in order to avoid accommodating a religious practice that it could accommodate without undue hardship. They said, you know what? You haven't shown that it's going to cause your business even a de minimis amount of financial loss or hardship 
basically, to have this lady working in your store, okay? If you can show us, oh man, our business, is, our you know, sales just tanked after this lady with a headdress came in. Well, they didn't have anything to show that. It was speculative at, at best. Uh, the issue in this case was whether this prohibition applies only where an applicant has informed the employer of his need for an accommodation, that whole notice thing, right? And so this is an interesting case because it kind of hit on an issue that maybe people were wondering about, needed to be resolved. So the court held that the rule for disparate treatment cases based on a failure to accommodate a religious practice is straightforward. An employer may not make an applicant's religious practice confirmed or otherwise a factor in employment, situ in employment decisions. Notice that it's not something you're ignorant about, okay? Yeah, so it goes back to the issue before that we talked about two issues. Number one, Title VII covers employers with 15 or more employees. So if that's a very small practice that's under 15 employees, then it, it, Title VII wouldn't apply. Okay, so if, let's say it's 16 employees. Title VII then applies, so then there's an exception for an organization that is a religious organization. So... So those are where the, the factors come in that we talked about earlier that um, they'll look at the um, articles of incorporation, the mission statement, the uh, what does this company do? You know, do they mainly do religious stuff? Are they teaching about religion? Are they affiliated with the church? Are they nonprofit or are they for-profit? All those things come into play. I wouldn't, I, and, and I have to look at every situation, so I'm not going to give you a um, legal opinion here so much, but a, a doctor's office probably would not, be considered a religious organization, you know, unless maybe there's some, you know, it's a nonprofit, uh, you know, like free medical clinic, you know, that's, con that's all they do is religious type, you know, stuff. I don't know. You'd have to, to look at those factors. But, um, and, and your state law might have a lower threshold, you know, again, for the number of employees that need to be there and that kind of thing. So, yeah, these are interesting things to think about, right? So, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more here at the end. Um, this, so in this case, notice that the employer suspected that Samantha Uloff had a religious issue with the headdress. They weren't sure. Well, it's probably religious. I, I think they kind of, I mean, they knew, right? But they said, oh, we didn't really know. We weren't sure. Well, if you suspect it and you say, I'm going to discriminate against them because I think that's something to do with their religion, let's not hire them or whatever, based upon that, that's where it becomes a problem. Now, if you say, man, I got five, you know, potential hires here, and this one just looks a lot more qualified, and it's nothing to do with their religion. That person over there, maybe they say, well, you failed to hire me because of my religion. Well, then, you know, that, that's where you can show, perhaps, that uh, there were other reasons. So here's some tips for employers, okay? Explore reasonable ways to eliminate the conflict. That's a key phrase, especially in California. That's a key phrase under law, under the law there. Eliminate the conflict between the employee's religious practice and belief and the job requirements. So if an employee comes to you and says, man, I just need to wear my, you know, my little crucifix or whatever all the time, and maybe it you know, somehow interferes with the uniform that you have or something like that, explore ways that you can accommodate them or you know, say, I need to go to this religious event on, on Friday and, 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 and that's a work day. 
explore and see if you can work something out, basically. Um, when an employee requests an accommodation, being reasonable and nice, this is just common sense, right, will likely help you to avoid litigation down the road. This is, that's the thing I see the most is employers who are just kind of nasty, you know. Supervisors that say nasty things, you're like, why would you even deal with a situation like this? Well, I don't know. People just do that. Um, yeah, and, and this is true too. At least from what I've seen, most religious accommodation discrimination, especially religious workplace accommodation cases, settle prior to trial. That doesn't mean that the employer, well, and who, who knows who wins, but uh, a lot of them uh, don't even get to the trial phase. So basically, here's, here's the uh, takeaway. Let's see if this works here. Yeah, don't be one of these, you know. Now, I do like donkeys, by the way. I had one as a child, but uh, you don't want to act like one. They're very stubborn and not very nice sometimes. Um, so I want to just take you now really quick, and let's see what time we have here. Oh, we're really, we're getting close here. Yes? Well, some, some countries aren't as friendly to situations like, like France. Yeah. They've come out and said, you know, the, the women and the Muslim women have the full face want to teach in a school. They're saying what's more important than her rights is the children's right to, to recognize who it is that's teaching them. Right. They have the full face, uh, you know, so. <laughs> You're right. Who has more rights? This is you're exactly right. I mean, it's, and we're going to see this tension actually right now because it's the same thing, I think, with religious expression in the workplace and the hostile work environment issue. It's this tension of, well, whose rights win? It's the same thing with gay rights and religious rights. I'm retired now, but I, I did a lot of work for different state agencies in Sacramento. And the last few years, when Christmas time came around, there is no word coming from any of the offices advertising the Chris, annual Christmas conference. Now it's the annual holiday season. Right. There's no more Merry Christmas, it's holiday greeting. Right, right. Defending somebody that doesn't believe in Christmas. I think it's kind of gone too far that they're trying so hard to be politically correct. So in some ways this, this whole legal thing, it kind of goes down into a milder political correctness. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting issue, yeah. And, and you know, honestly, um, yeah, well... So I, I, you'll find this interesting here, I think, about expression in the workplace. Merry Christmas. Let's talk about that. You know, let's say you want to say that. How do we find the balance? And this is really the issue here. Religious accommodation and your First Amendment rights. Now, First Amendment, of course, some people say, well, it's my First Amendment right to be able to say whatever I want in the workplace. Well, that depends if it's a First Amendment right. Do you realize the First Amendment only applies to working or to, to who? To the government, right? Think of the First Amendment text. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, blah, blah, blah. Who's not supposed to make a law about it? Congress, government, state. It applies to the states of the 14th Amendment, right? So um, when it comes to your private employers, your private employers can tell you, hey, I don't want you to talk, you know, to do this or that or the other. They have the right to do that a lot more than the government does. But we'll talk about you still have religious expression rights in the workplace, and we'll talk about how Title VII protects that, uh, but First Amendment, just keep in mind that someone says, that's my free speech right. Well, free speech rights with private employers are a little bit different than with the government. Um, and so how do we find the balance between that, accommodating people's religious expression? Let's say you have a Muslim person, okay? So we're, a lot, we're Christians here. Or a Hindu person who says, I want to say something on the phone when I answer the phone, or I want to wear my particular you know, religious garb or, or have my religious paraphernalia at my desk and maybe you're uncomfortable with that or some of your employees are or something. How do you balance that with 
what is the harassment hostile work environment issue, okay? Someone says, man, I'm feeling harassed by the fact that this person wants to witness to me all the time. We're talking about witnessing in the workplace, right? How does that look? So here's something for you, the witnessing employer, okay? And, I, and some of this stuff here I got from a guy who is, uh, well, actually, no, I'm going to show you three cases here, and I'll tell you about the guy, okay? So Title VII, listen to this, is violated when an employer or supervisor explicitly or implicitly coerces an employee to abandon, alter, or adopt a religious practice as a condition of receiving a job benefit or avoiding an adverse employment action. Does that make sense to you? Um, so if you're using religion in the workplace and you're not a religious organization uh, to do any of those things, that could be problematic. Three cases real quick. I'm not even going to go through all these because we don't have time. But um, So let's just talk about the elements to improve in court a case for a hostile work environment. So an employee, if you're an employee or if you're an employer, here's what they'd have to prove. To establish a case for religious harassment, an employee must show that the harassment was based on her religion, unwelcome, sufficiently severe or pervasive to alter the conditions of employment by creating an intimidating, hostile, or offensive work environment, and there is a basis for employer liability. In other words, what that last one means is that you knew about it, or you, one of your supervisors did, or you should have known about it. That's from the EEOC compliance manual. By the way, you can get that stuff online if you want to go back and look for this. A couple quick cases. Jennifer Venters worked for the city of Delphi as a 911 radio dispatcher. Um, she was eventually fired by the police chief whose name was Ives. Ives was this born-again Christian guy, Pentecostal, who incessantly lectured Venters about how she needed to give her life to God. Now, she was kind of a you know, quasi-religious person herself, but she was doing some immoral things. She had people over at her house, and there was you know, rumors they were watching pornography with guys at work and you know, this kind of thing. And so he told her that if she didn't get her life together, he was going to trade her, which she took to mean get rid of her fire. You know? So she was eventually demoted and terminated Ives in the department claimed her termination was for non-discriminatory reasons. You know, she did a couple things that could have been give, given that impression. Um, here's some of the things he told her, though. This is an example of probably what you shouldn't do as an employer, okay? Um, Ives was the police chief, Venters the 911 operator. He said to her, hey, to be a good employee, a person needs to be spiritually whole, and to be spiritually whole, a person had to be saved. You know, that's nice if they're willing to hear it, but if they're kind of resistant, uh, he said, hey, you need to pay attention, and when people were ministering to you because a person has a limited number of chances in their lifetime to accept God and be saved, and you might be running out of chances. Now, again, if someone's willing to hear this, go for it, right? But in her case, she used this against him. Um, basically, your positive and negative spirits are doing battle. You need to come to my church, and this is God's house. And again, if you don't play by God's rules in the county police uh, station office, then I'm going to get rid of you. So, yeah, you just do. So basically the court found um, that since a jury could reasonably characterize Venter's work environment at the Delphi police station as hostile and abusive, that summary judgment was inappropriate. In other words, they found for Venter's the 911 operator. And uh, this case is also very instructive. Some of you might be interested in this. Yeah. So was, was that conversation all recorded? <laughs> no, she recalled it, and I think he acknowledged that at least most of it was true. Yeah, those were things that she had recalled as I, re yeah, as I remember, yeah. Uh, this case is a very interesting one, and this applies to you know, small businesses and that kind of thing. Um, Jake and Helen Townley, born in Christians, they founded this manufacturing company, closely held, that means small, not publicly traded, 
corporation that manufactures mining equipment. So, so far, does it sound like it's a religious organization? They manufacture mining equipment. That's what they do. But they are born in Christians, and they made a covenant with God to run their business as a Christian business. Um, they, it says this organization reflected its founder's covenant with God in several ways. For example, they enclosed a gospel track with all of their outgoing mail, right? They print uh, Bible verses on all company notices. Hey, put glow tracks in your, in your bills, right? You know, this is good stuff. Um, purchase orders, et cetera, et cetera, support to various churches and missionaries, and they had a devotional service every week. Mandatory, by the way. Mandatory devotional service. That's the key, by the way, in this case. Um, they had this weekly devotional service in Florida at their plants, about 30 to 45 minutes. They had the prayer Thanksgiving, then they also included some business stuff in it, okay? And it was required, and failure to attend was considered the equivalent to not attending work. They hired this guy, Louis Pelvis. He signed a statement, employee handbook, I will abide by everything in the employee handbook. Which, by the way, if you get someone to sign that, it doesn't mean that if you include things in the employee handbook that are against the law, that that gets you off the hook. So, uh, he attended the services without complaint for a while, and then he said, hey, I'm an atheist, can you excuse me? No. You can come, read the newspaper, you know, sit in the back, you don't have to listen. So finally, um, he filed this charge with the EEOC, and then he left the company, and basically he said he was constructively discharged, which basically means he was kind of pushed out. They didn't fire him, but, you know, made it hard for him to be there, and that's called constructive discharge. Um, and they said, no, that wasn't the case. The court, in this case, said Congress intended for Title VII, that's the law we read earlier, to apply to Townley's mandatory devotional service. By the way, if you read this case in its entirety, it's a very fair case, I think, for both sides. They were very, very much wanting to protect the employer's expression of their religion through the devotional services, but they were also wanting to protect the employee's you know, desire to not have to go to that because of his religious convictions. Um, they also found that, that the exemption for religious organizations did not apply to this closely held corporation that manufactured mining equipment. It's not a religious corporation. Um, they said, but we do hold that the owners do have certain rights under the free exercise clause that Title VII cannot infringe. In other words, we can't, you know, the government can't impose through Title VII on the employer certain things that... Um, so they held that, number one, the requirement that employer accommodate employees' religious objections to devotional services by excusing him would cause the employer no undue hardship. The, the Townleys couldn't show how it would cause their company any, any hardship to not allow Lewis, or to not make Lewis Pelvis attend. Um, again, the other things I told you, not a religious corporation, and basically they said, don't make it mandatory. Don't make it mandatory to have people come to this devotional. Yeah, employee, employers should not try to suppress all religious expression in the workplace. So if you have someone who's not of your faith and you're like, I don't agree with what you're saying, you're like witnessing to, you know, you're spreading false religion in my workplace, you gotta be careful there because there is some proselytization, you can say, that's allowed within the workplace, absolutely. And, um, in determining whether permitting an employee to pray, proselytize, or engage in other forms of religiously oriented expression in the workplace, uh, whether it would pose an undue hardship, relevant considerations may include the effect such expression has on coworkers, customers, or business operations. In other words, is it causing harassment to take place? Uh, we're not going to have time to go through this. Very interesting case. Um, 
This is where she wrote, okay, check this out. This lady, uh, Chalmers v. Toulon Company of Richland, she wrote a letter to her supervisor telling him, you need to be saved, basically, okay? Um, and you need to quit being sinful. Well, he gets the letter in the mail, okay? And he's not home. His wife opens it up, and she reads this thing about how he needs to repent, but doesn't really say of what, and she thinks he's having an affair. So she calls him up in the middle of a business deal, interrupts him, get out, get out, get out. are you having an affair on me? And um, he's like, what? And, you know, totally, you know, messes this guy's life up because this Christian wanted to preach to him. And anyway, and then she did it to somebody else, said the same thing. She did, sent another letter to him, or to this other person, and uh, chastising them for having an affair in that case. So her employer said, man, you're really messing things up. They fired her. And the court actually sided with the employer in that case and said, you know what? You didn't show us that it was part of your religion to write chastising letters to people, first of all. Secondly, even if it was, you're causing a lot of disturbance, and that's not an, a religious belief that we should have to accommodate. You know, the employer should have to accommodate. Um, this is another interesting case, born-again Christian. This guy, interesting, worked for the county, had his secretary type up his Bible study notes for him. And uh, so basically he did that. He would also cite Bible passages and uh, affirm his Christianity and offer prayers during departmental meetings. Basically the court held that some of that was okay. It wasn't okay for his secretary to do work for him during work hours, but it was okay for him to pray if people weren't opposed to that as a county employee. It was okay for them to have Bible study groups, but not during work time. And he couldn't use county buildings without against county policy for Bible study and things like that. But Basically, it was a very good balance. They, they said, you know what? It's, yes, you do have some First Amendment rights here, county government, et cetera. We need to get to our end part here because we've got too much stuff. All right. This is praise the Lord and God bless you. Very interesting case there. And those guys actually won. They were employees who would say, praise the Lord, God bless you to everybody they met. And um, food service, like a fast food thing. And um, the employer lost in that case. And you know what? They're not disturbing anybody, you know. Again, this one is a very interesting case about a lady who wanted to wear a graphic anti-abortion pin, and uh, employ, uh, employees were complaining about it, and even employees who agreed with her views on abortion said, you know, it's just not a good way to deal with it, and so she lost that case. Um, all right, best practices for businesses really quick. This is important. Employers should have a well-publicized, consistently applied anti-harassment policy that covers religious harassment clearly explains what's prohibited, describes procedures, et cetera. And make sure that you have ways for people, multiple ways for people to, to file those complaints or talk to people. Um, you should allow religious expression among your employees to the same extent that you allow other ki kinds of uh, personal expression that are not harassing or disruptive, okay? That's the key here. It's that balance, again, between expression and harassment. Um, once an employer is on notice that an employee objects to religious conduct that is directed at them, the employer should take steps to end the conduct uh, the conduct because even conduct the employer does not regard as abuse, it can become that way uh, if it continues sometimes. Um, even your, your contractors, you got to be careful there if they're doing stuff, you have to deal with that. Um, yeah, immediately intervene, um, encourage your managers to intervene. And this is from the EEOC compliance manual, also something you can find online if you Google religious harassment, Title VII EEOC. Now, um, Let's talk about employers, what you can do. You can witness to your customers however you desire. If you have your small business and you're, you're the owner of it, 
You can do whatever you want as far as that goes with your customers, okay? How you treat your employees, you gotta be careful to some extent as we talked about. Um, you can do it through your company policies and practices, provided that you did not give prospective or current employees the perception that employment or advancement requires workers to adopt a certain religious belief. I mean, I know a lot of Adventist medical professionals who have offices and they leave literature there and that kind of thing. But if you're trying, you know, you gotta be careful you don't pressure your, your employees who are not into your same beliefs uh, to make them feel like they have to follow your religion, et cetera. Um, this is David Gibbs wrote a great article, The Legal Implications of Witnessing at Work on CBN.com, Christian Broadcasting Network. Great article if you want to read that. Um, accommodate their objections. Don't require them to participate in religious services. That's from the Townley case. Um, two legal limitations on employees, what employees can do. Don't allow your religious discussions to interfere with your work. Okay, that makes sense, right? And um, second thing is, if, if you're a good employee, by the way, it's a lot easier for lawyers to help you out later on. If you're a lazy employee, then it makes it harder. Um, if, an, if a coworker, this is the second thing, indicates directly or indirectly that she does not wish to discuss matters of religion, the Christian employee should immediately stop, and so on and so forth. Um, doesn't mean that you can't talk about religion at work as an employee. It just means that you have to be careful that you're not perceived as harassing someone. And if you're an employee, and can I witness to customers? Well, that's kind of something that is what your employer would be able to answer for you if they're gonna allow that. Let me finish this real quick and then we'll take questions. Um, what are remedies? That means remedies, the, the, the solutions to these issues here. First of all, what I say is, if there's a problem with any of this stuff we've been talking about, talk with the people nicely and try to work it out. Sit down and have lunch, you know, deal, you know try to deal with it on that level. If that doesn't work, uh, if you're an employee, employee or an employer, get your, well, an employee in this case mainly, get your pastor, your local religious liberty department involved. And employers, they can help you as well sometimes with the legal aspect of things. Um, if you're an employee, your pastor can write a letter for you to your employer, your religious liberty department can do that. Um, contact the church state council if you don't have a religious liberty department. Um, you can file a charge with the EEOC, that's free, and it's simple to do. And if that course doesn't work, there's always lawsuits and then all sorts of damages, back pay, front pay, compensatory and punitive damages that come along with that. Reinstatement back into the job, injunctive relief, attorney's fees, oh yeah, they like those, right? And then um, we won't talk about the Hobby Lobby case, very interesting, if you're interested in that, I can talk to you about it later. Interesting case, it's, it's definitely protecting religious employers um, in relation to the Affordable Care Act at least, but uh, it's not very broad. Um, we're talking about witnessing in the workplace how to witness like Jesus? I think I like this quote. You've read this one. Christ's method alone, right? He mingled as one who desired their good. And then after he won their confidence and ministered to them, he said, follow me. So I think, you know, you, you talk about the lady who wrote the letters, you know, accusing people of being bad. Probably not following Christ's method in the workplace. Um, who knows? Maybe, maybe she felt like she was. But um, great quotes here. I like this, agree with the people on every point where you can consistently do so. Let them see that you love their souls. And uh, this one here, the manner in which Bible truth is presented often has much to do with how, it, with the impressions made upon minds and with the Christian character afterward developed by those who receive the truth. Historical sketches, page 121. How do we do it? That's the question. So I think the simple thing is be like Jesus. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries.
If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.